Hush, hush, hush. Here comes the boogeyman. Don't let him come too close to you. He'll catch you if he can. Welcome to Boggart and the Banshee, a supernatural podcast. I'm Chris, the relentlessly informative. I study ghosts, Fortiana, fashion history, and death. And I'm Simon, Chris's worst nightmare. I study boggets, fairies, urban legends, and the impossible. I'm Chris Woodyard, a writer and historian from Ohio. And I'm Simon Young, a British writer based in Italy. And today, Chris and I will be talking about the clothes-slashing poltergeist of Worcester, Ohio. Chris, over to you. Can you give us an introduction to this, from what I know, absolutely unique case? It's called the Hoffman poltergeist case in some publications because it's the Hoffman family. And it started in June of 1870 in Millersburg, Ohio, a small farming community, the house of David Hoffman, where, according to a Worcester, Ohio newspaper, the family is said to be haunted by malignant spirits who are uncomfortably rampant in their evil ways, diabolical in their transactions and mysterious in their doings. Now, according to the 1870 census, the family was David Hoffman, age 52, his wife, Mary, age 45, daughters, Keziah, 25, and Etta, 17, and son, Jacob, 13. Uh, At some point, there'd been a fourth child. I've not found the death date for that child. David worked as a miller at Sharps Mill, two miles south of Millersburg, and life was good, he said. He was doing well at the mill. He had a good salary, a good home, and was in every way in comfortable circumstances. But then, cue the dramatic chord. Like many poltergeist infestations, it began with something very simple. David missed $2 from his wallet. After that, he hid his money but that too began to disappear. Also, food and clothing began to disappear. The usual poltergeist activities began to happen. Crockery fell and broke. Stones, gravel, eggs were mysteriously thrown around the house. The focal point seemed to be the cellar. Naturally, the family was frightened and mystified. So everybody, except for David Hoffman, the head of the household, moved to a house in Worcester, about 20 miles north of Millersburg. He continued to work at the mill. Nothing unearthly happened. But his family on West Liberty Street in Worcester was followed by an entity they called IT, IT in capitals, which seemed obsessed with the family's clothing. And here's a couple of passages which give a flavor. The clothing of the mother and eldest daughter was taken, some returned from whence no one could tell, all cut to pieces as if with shears, and some secreted in out-of-the-way places. For instance, all their underclothing was found stuffed into the mouth of the cellar drain. A silk dress hid under a woodpile in the cellar and skirts, etc., buried in sand. One of the strangest occurrences is that one of the daughters purchased a pair of shoes and for safety left them at a neighbor's who hung them upon the wall. Next morning, the shoes were missing and no trace of them could be discovered. The next day, Mrs. Hoffman put some meat in a vessel on the stove for dinner. When about ready to be served, the lid was taken off. When it was found that with the meat boiling away was one of the shoes cut into fine pieces. And thus, the spirit cook spoiled their broth. What do you think, Simon? Classic poltergeist behavior? Something even more sinister? 
Well, um, a little exotic for perhaps classic poltergeist behaviour. I mean, my understanding of poltergeists is that poltergeists are a force that appears in a small human community, almost always a, a family house, though you do have some cases where perhaps it's in a hamlet or a very small village. And we have recorded instances from Europe going all the way back to the 12th century. And Andrew Lang, the, the great paranormalist, had a basically made the case that this stuff has been around since we were in the caves, going all the way back to the Paleolithic. It's perhaps one of the most basic forms of the supernatural. And what you normally seem to get is a acceleration. You start with very, very low things on the scale, like knocking, for instance. Knocking is the classic one, or the cracking of wood. And then maybe you move up towards sounds. There might be disembodied voices. A favourite from the UK is you hear the crashing of crockery in the kitchen. You go to mm. the kitchen and nothing is actually broken. And then you start to have the poltergeist intervene physically in the world. So things are knocked off tables, things are taken and then perhaps at the very top end of the scale, you have the actually harmful behavior. And for me, here we're clearly in this last category. We're not quite with fire starting poltergeists as you get in some cases, but there's something incredibly intimate and unpleasant about slashing clothes. Something, exactly. something very violent. I, I suppose so in that sense, we have an exceptional case. An exceptionally violent case. I, I would say that one in 10, one in seven cases get this high. Of course, they're the cases that we tend to hear about, but even so, it's relatively rare. Something else that's interesting, usually skeptics, and with poltergeists, I, I would be a small less skeptic again. I, I find a lot of this rather suspicious. Point to unusual dynamics in families, and we'll talk about mm -hmm. this later. And this is summed up very nicely in an English folk story that tells how there was a poltergeist in a house. The poltergeist created more and more trouble in the house. In the end, the family decide to decamp very early one morning just to leave the poltergeist behind. And as they're going down the drive of their house, they meet a neighbor who says, ah, so you're leaving, are you? And the head of the family says, yeah, we're, we're leaving, we're leaving, we're, we're sick of it. And a voice comes from the suitcases on the cart behind, and it's the poltergeist. And he says, yeah, we're, we're going, we're just moving on to the next house. <laughs> In other words, you take this stuff with you. This exactly. poltergeist phenomenon is not generally about houses. It's about the dynamics within families. And let's see, Chris, as you lay out this case a little bit more, whether we can trace any unusual energies in this house the poltergeist activity that goes so far back it, it really is kind of puzzling if the skeptics often believe that all poltergeist activities are merely pranks caused by mischievous teenagers but the activities follow the same patterns and remained unchanged over the centuries as you said the knocking the throwing of things, the crockery breaking, and then the violence. So, Chris, um, it, you, you say they stay unchanged over the centuries. I'm always fascinated. We've already talked about this in, in other contexts in previous episodes, but the way that the supernatural changes yeah. over the centuries. And for me, even with poltergeists, there are trends of certain poltergeist behavior. And I'll give you a silly example, but from early modern towards modern Germany, poltergeists seem to throw feces. There were several cases of this 
from the German speaking world. Now, maybe it's just that English and American newspapers were too genteel, but I never have come across this in a British source. And so I think that, yeah, there is a constancy and there is this the same general patterning that things start weak and they build up and they get stronger and stronger. But I think from generation to generation and place to place, you'll find some differences in form, let's say. And it will be interesting a little bit later today. Perhaps we could look at specifically clove slashing as a variety of poltergeist behavior. Right. You, oh, that makes it. You make a really good point about the details changing the the arc usually stays the same, but you're right, the details do change. And usually these things run out of energy in about six months. Uh, but the Hoffman poltergeist lasted a lot longer than that, from at least June of 1870 to September of 1871, when the family again moved uh, to Akron, Ohio. The whole thing lasted for what, a couple of years? Is that, or do we just I mean, not know when it ends? Did everyone get bored in the end? We really don't know when it ends, but we don't hear anything more about it in the newspapers after September of 1871 when they moved and the family actually split up again. So, But can we talk a little bit about the family and go back to basics? Because, again, as the skeptic, it's my job to line up the suspects and by all <laughs> means tell me that we're, we're looking in the wrong direction. But of course, even if it's not directly a human responsible for these effects, many parapsychologists would say it indirectly is. It's the energy within the family, the way mm -hmm. this energy is bouncing around in the house. We seem to have Mr. Hoffman, who my impression is a rather put upon uh, middle aged stroke elderly gentleman. Um, we have his wife. And then we have three daughters. Now, you gave different ages from the ones I picked up from the newspaper reports. Oh, and here, I'm going to trust you. Oh, um, actually, it's, it's two daughters and a son. No. Well, so listen, I thought using the newspaper reports that it was three daughters. Perhaps I'm mm. reading off my own family situation here and fearing for the future. Um, but the ages <laughs> were 20, 17 and 15. So what were the ages that you have? Uh, 25, 17, and 13. And so this is our first lesson in how you never trust yes. sources. And, yes. and I was going off the census report, which is not always entirely reliable because looking at later newspaper reports of, for example, the eldest daughter, Keziah, um, they, they seem to not quite know exactly how old she is. In some cases, it sounds like she's 15 years older than her husband and others just five years older. So it's, it's difficult to say whether the census report people put down the wrong year of birth. Uh, she's listed as, as I say, as 25 in 1870, mm. which is kind of long in the tooth to be living still in the family home. And then there's another daughter, age 17, and the son, 13. In another census report, they ask Mrs. Hoffman, how many children have you? And she said, four, three living. Oh. So there was probably another child between the eldest and the second daughter. But I haven't found a, a death notice of that child. Many years ago, I came across a, a talk with a, a parapsychologist who was talking about poltergeist, and he, he was he wasn't a skeptic. He believed very much there is a force play in these incidents um, that's non-human, but that directly derives from humans. And he had a rule that I'll share with you, and by all means, tear it apart as 
as it <laughs> would tear the, the poor Hoffman's clothes apart. But he said, if you want to look for the source, then there are three rules. Look for the feminine, look for the young, and look for the marginalised. If what you're saying about the younger son, and I've got my facts mixed up with the, the three daughters, is wrong, then presumably by that criteria, the second daughter, who was, what, 17, 15, right. um, mm-hmm. would be would be the, the interesting figure. And I do notice, for me, one of the sentences that really stands out in the report is one of the newspapers specifies that it was the mother and the elder daughter who originally had their clothes shredded. Right, right. And that immediately makes me think if there was hostile energy or difficulties within the family, it seems the poltergeist had pretty much singled out a couple of bullies that needed to be dealt with, looked at from the poltergeist point of view. Mm-hmm, exactly. And, and there were a lot of contemporary theories about the cause, uh, at least voiced in the papers. Um, the, the first accounts almost immediately mentioned Cotton Mather. Uh, suggesting that there was witchcraft afoot. And uh, Mr. and Mrs. Hoffman were both born in Pennsylvania, which was a hotbed of witch belief all through the 19th century and even later. So the idea that this was witchcraft wouldn't have been maybe a little bit old-fashioned, but not unexpected. But then it was suggested, and I love this one, that the household's problems were caused by the spirit of Mrs. Hoffman's dead sister. As one newspaper put it, the evil genius of her house, she sometimes is constrained to believe, is the spirit of a deceased sister who died in Holmes County, Ohio, a few months before it began operations. They used to quarrel a good deal about clothes before the sister put on immortality. And it may be that the force of habit was so strong as to lure the departed one, when in a wayward mood, from the bright side of the New Jerusalem to renew old times with her sister and to cut up her clothes. This is one of the great things about American cases. I'm not saying that American journalists write better in the 19th century, but it's a lot more fun to read than the rather stolid British journalists talking about the same thing and getting outraged at the predictable moments. I I find that American journalists have a a much better sense of humour like this. So we have a force that emerges in the family, and then the family has to decide what this force is. And we have this in many poltergeist cases. And sometimes you're choosing an area of the supernatural. So is this witchcraft? Is it a demon? Is it a fairy? In other cases, you may have, okay, it's a spirit. This is much more common in the later 19th century, and perhaps we could talk about this later. But whose ghost is it that's coming to haunt us? And my impression, again, is that at the beginning, the poltergeist is a rather dull force. It's not got much strength. But as the family, it's almost as if the family is negotiating with this force, and trying to give it a personality. And after a while, the the family hoists a personality onto the poltergeist. And it's almost as if getting that personality gives the poltergeist more force. Now, quite how you explain this process, I throw at my hands. I think you're you're correct in that. Uh, I I think of the famous Jeff case, the, the phantom mongoose, which grew in strength and began eventually to talk and uh, took on almost a physical personality. They supposedly had a a photograph of the thing, although it looks like a fur piece perched on a fence. But they accelerate. They, They do gain strength. And I think it is from the strength of belief of the family. 
Mrs. Hoffman also apparently imagined it might be the ghost of her father, yet she thought he wouldn't have the heart to bewitch her family. And she went on and on and on. And then they said, until many dead are under suspicion of not being as good as they might be, which seems to be a slam against the spiritualists who came in relatively early in this case and sort of tried to take it over. Perhaps we should just throw in a line here to the to the spiritualists. I think they matter a lot in this case because in the later 19th century, when you have poltergeist cases, uh, witches are far less popular, demons are far less popular than they mm. used to be. There's much more this trend to look for an explanation in the world of the undead. So to look for a likely candidate in the family's recent past or sometimes in the house's recent past. And the spiritualism has been around but this date for the best part of a generation spiritualism began in the late 1840s 1848 a very unhappy year in europe but in america the the fox sisters i think in the the state of new york began to hear bangings and interpreted this as a spirit and it was this stuff has been going on for centuries but what's incredible about the fox spirits it was just that example of an idea whose time had come. It caught fire in the newspapers and it very, very quickly spread around the English speaking world. And suddenly there was this idea that anyone had the potential to be able to, to cross the, the river and communicate to the undead in some way, particularly with the help of a medium. And this idea became a new religion. It, it grows in popularity up until, say, the 1930s. So for the, the, the best part of a century after the Fox sisters have their first communications from a spirit, this thing is growing and growing. And I noticed the way, and I've, I've seen this in many reports from the second half of the 19th century, that journalists and other society members cannot resist making reference to spiritualists or calling spiritualists in. And that's what seems to have happened in this case. Exactly. And and the local paper had a lot of fun at the family's expense when the spiritualists were called in. They said they darkened the room and put a tin pan and a stick on a table and Eureka, the stick commenced hammering the pan. And Mrs. Hoffman and her eldest daughter were crowned and anointed as first-class mediums. And then they had a celebrated clairvoyant, one Madame Thompson, come to visit. And she arrived and also said it was spirits causing the trouble. But there were so many strong mediums in the Hoffman family that confusion was created. And that if she could take one of them away, harmony would be restored. It's an odd thing to say, but I felt that of all the hundreds and hundreds of words written on this case, this was the single most perceptive comment. If you or I were parachuted into this situation and asked for advice, my advice would be, look, send the younger daughter away for six months to an aunt. And again, I'm not claiming I understand what creates these forces. And I'm not claiming definitively that in this case, a young girl was playing mischief. But I do think that there's something to do with family dynamics here. And if you can break up these dynamics, that surely cannot do damage. I mean, on that subject, Chris, I've got to ask you this business about the father. How does this work? The father leaves and the manifestations stop, but then the father is needed by the family, so he's dragged back in, and at which point the manifestations begin again. Is that right? That is correct. Yes, it is. Uh, it also seems that the attacks ended, again, when they moved to Akron 
and when Mrs. Hoffman was declared a first-class medium. And I wondered if that conferred on her some special status, some role she could claim beyond household drudge. Because the female mediums of the spiritualist movement often assumed masculine roles, such as preaching or lecturing, which was a very liberating experience. So uh, there's nothing more said about this in the papers, except that she was declared a first class medium. And then there was a when they moved to Akron, the the Akron paper, the local paper made fun of them as the spirit rappers. So apparently they were officially anointed as spiritualists before they moved. But then we don't hear anything more about any kind of poltergeist activity. I, I always think of you as being having two primary topics, ghosts and clothes. And here we seem to combine. We have the, the clothing of people being destroyed practically on their bodies. Mm-hmm. How would you interpret this? Let, let's leave aside the mechanisms for a minute. But what, what on earth does this mean? I've written before about how certain poltergeists take great interest in the human wardrobe, either constructing strange tableau out of clothes, as in the Stratford poltergeist case. They came home and found these 11 or 12 figures sitting in the parlor, very sinister, very strange, made out of the family's clothes. Or the poltergeists maliciously destroy the clothing. And so much of what poltergeists do can be understood in symbolic terms. They sometimes target religious objects or clergymen. They, certain persons in the household are tormented more than others. And clothing, which could be seen as a surrogate for a living person, a symbolic skin of that person, is shredded in a highly aggressive and personal attack. And we find this even in the uh, fire-setting poltergeists. Clothes and bedding are a prime target for fire-setting poltergeists. It's a very domestic kind of violence. And as you say, we need to look for the feminine. I was looking for any parallels, not necessarily from the supernatural world, but from popular culture more generally. The closest I came were the films that I grew up with in the 70s and 80s, where you would have a wife who was furious with her husband and shredded his suit. The classic thing, the husband runs off with the the lover, so the wife burns all his clothes in the back garden, that kind of thing. And particularly in the 19th century, I would imagine that would have a feminine association. Is, Is that fair or...? Yeah, I think it would. Um, Women were in charge of the family's wardrobe. They made a lot of, in some cases, they made a lot of the uh, household clothing or they repaired it. Uh, You could buy ready-made clothing, but if you, in the working economy, a farmer or a miller, things got damaged. So you, you had to do a lot of constant repairing or stocking darning. It was, it was very repetitive and very tedious. And this is where I come across one of my boggle moments in the account. Boggle is used often by Fortians to refer to a moment in an account where you just cease to believe. But there's one extraordinary (laughs) episode where, and here the American journalist has a lot of fun and deals with it very nicely, but where um, a little bit of underwear goes missing and the next day is thrown up the stairs, having been re-sewed, is that correct, into an apron? Reed sewn into an apron, that's right, by a supposed invisible sewing machine that had taken up residence in the cellar. So, yeah, I have no idea what was going on there. Absolutely no idea. You've been talking about the way that this is a very intimate form of attack, and I'm sure we all get a sense of this 
particularly the idea of almost razor blades slashing at the clothes, something something very violent. What would you say about parallels to this in the supernatural world? I've given you some rather weak popular culture parallels, but do we have other poltergeist cases where there are attacks going back in history on clothes on people? Absolutely. Um, I know I've got examples from the 12th and 15th century in England, but naturally I can't find those cases when I need them. But Joseph Glanville wrote about a weaver named Gilbert Campbell in Galloway, Scotland, who was tormented in 1654 by what was described as the devil. He found oft times his warp and threads cut as with a pair of scissors and the reed broken. That was his weaving material. And not only this, but their apparel cut after the same manner, even while they were wearing them, their coats, bonnets, hose and shoes, but could not discern how or by what means. John Aubrey wrote of a young Devon man, a fellow named Francis Fry, who in 1683 was subjected to the attentions of some discontented diamond he described him as. His wig was torn to pieces. His shoe buckles fell to bits without a touch. The best bit was when a maid saw one of his shoestrings coming out of his shoes, which crisped and curled about her hand like a living eel. And the clothes worn by a local woman and Francis Fry were torn to pieces on their backs. Uh, In West Virginia, we find the wizard clip demon. It made a clipping noise like a pair of invisible scissors and cut crescent-shaped slits in the family's clothes and the household linens. Uh, But one of the latest I found was from 1906 France. Two young girl apprentices found their clothes falling in pieces, torn by some invisible hand in full view of many wit. I would still say that these are very rare cases and that if you had to put a book together of clothes slashing ghosts, you would struggle. There's just not enough material. At least this is my this is my perception of it. Am I right? Or are these really no. exceptional cases? There, I think what we're talking about, as you said, the details vary. Nobody's throwing feces here, um, but there is a, a class of poltergeist, maybe it's a particular species that does target these domestic linens and and clothing. So I don't know that they're that rare. If I had to put a book together, yeah, it would be a short book. But it could be done. Uh, But it could be done. And, And there's other cases of people's clothing falling to pieces as omens of something, omens of death or omens of death of a relative. I suppose we could also add that Cutting clothes meant a lot more in the 19th century. And the clothes today are a 20th, perhaps, of the price of clothes in the 19th century relative to earning. And so if a dress was suddenly ripped to pieces, it, it was an economic blow for a family in question, well, at least a, um, a middle class family. Whereas today, if my dog rips up my trousers, it's not the end of the world. Is that also fair? I don't know if we could say go quite as far as that. Clothing was readily available, even in small towns. Um, it was expensive, though. And this gentleman, you know, Mr. Hoffman, bemoaned the fact that all of this wardrobe was completely destroyed. And journalists came in and said, yes, we saw piles and piles of clothes just ripped to shreds. Uh, and it was quite a, an economic loss for the family. 
it wasn't that they couldn't replace them. It's just that it was expensive. The romantic in me, Chris, wants to believe some of these poltergeist cases. I'm faced with them um, and I see a family obviously struggling under the weight of certain energies. But as I said before, there were boggle moments in accounts where I just think, I'm not having that. No, that didn't happen. (laughs) Or if if it happened, this was done by human hands. And for Mm. me, this was a very, there were a couple of very nice examples of this. The the sewing machine in the cellar was one of them. But the other one was that it regularly left written messages. Now, I, I have a personal rule that when Fortean forces leave written messages, I simply cease to believe. I <laughs> I can't take written messages seriously. A, a couple of the newspaper accounts give um, an example of when Mr. Hoffman replied to it with a written message, took it down to the cellar, walked upstairs to tell his kids, and suddenly, lo and behold, the message dropped on the floor besides them, the one that Mr. Hoffman had just written. And when we have stuff like this, I, I'm sorry, but the belief just washes out of me. What, what do you find about written messages like this? Well, I agree that in, the, in this case, there are, are messages tied to stones with strings. Yeah. Uh, perhaps, I, I don't think of poltergeists as having opposable thumbs, so they can't tie strings, but uh, it just it is improbable. Uh, What I think we can say is that in a lot of poltergeist cases, people prolong them. Perhaps something starts out as genuinely odd, genuinely paranormal, and then it begins to wear out and the excitement is, is addictive. You know, we're getting a lot of attention. We're getting a lot of visitors. This is so cool. I'm, I'm really stirring things up, whoever that person might be. So I'm going to tie some messages to rocks and throw them around and no one will notice. And so it's possible that part of this was actual and part of it was actual human intervention just to keep the thing going. You do sometimes get these 14 arguments where we say, okay, yes, look, honest cop, part of this was false. The guys admitted it, but was it all? And I, I, I find, <laughs> I, I'm left incredulous by these arguments. However, I have to say over the years, particularly reading into shamanism, spiritual healing, there's an American academic, James McLennan, who's very good on this subject. There is a sense in which activities of communication with the spirit world seem to involve a degree of falsification that seems to help along genuine activities. And again, 10 years ago, I would have laughed at this, but having read a series of accounts, there does seem to be a degree of that. So where I was very impatient before with these kind of claims, I now have more sympathy, let's say. I also have the sense with poltergeist, often at the beginning, there does seem to be something. It's often very weak. And it's then rubbed up, it's excited into something much bigger. And much of the excess afterwards is perhaps put on or invented. But I do still find myself wondering about some of the lower forms of intervention, let's say. Chris, let me ask you a point blank question here. Was something supernatural really going on in this case? Oh, dear. Let me do my best. 
I think of there's there's always some psychological thing going on in the families that have poltergeists. Let me offer a disclaimer. I'm not a psychologist. I just play one on a podcast. Hmm. And it's been my experience, though, that many people who experience paranormal events like poltergeists have some earthly problem or trauma they haven't been able to deal with. What I call a classic poltergeist vector person is likely to be a frustrated, angry, or even abused individual, and they feel they have no choices. They can't solve the problems they face. We know for a, a fact that hormonal shifts seem to play a role, whether that's in puberty, whether it's to do with menstruation, or with menopause. Dissociative behavior is also often part of the picture. The person is throwing stones, but has no memory of it, or they're writing notes and they have no memory of it. And they can honestly say they didn't do it. There are some parapsychologists, uh, Dr. William Roll comes to mind, who've suggested that poltergeists are a form of spontaneous psychokinesis uh, arising from trauma and repression. Now, what the mechanism is that could cause a physical manifestation like stone throwing or clothes slashing, I have absolutely no idea. Poltergeists often act in, in symbolic ways in what they attack. And I wondered about the Freudian symbolism of all their underclothing was found stuffed into the mouth of the cellar drain. My goodness, and yes. There was an adolescent boy in the family. Or was it Mrs. Hoffman who might be, be behind it all? She was in her 40s. She was perhaps in or approaching the menopause. All of those stories about they stress how Mr. Hoffman was left unscathed until his wife begged him to move to Wooster and protect them and help her get the money she thought was in the basement. You're in sympathy with me when I say that we shouldn't say spirit. We should talk about some form of power here. Something's yeah. going on, but it's not necessarily an entity. It's almost like enough belief makes it an entity creates a personality, creates some sort of figure, but it's not really a spirit of a dead person, as the spiritualists might have us believe. I have this sense always when I read poltergeist accounts that the poltergeist is being fed. And I've never mm -hmm. been asked by someone to help in a poltergeist case. But if I found myself in this family and the dad said, look, my name's Mr. Hoffman, I'm having this dreadful time. What should I do? My advice, perhaps this is very British advice, would be just ignore it. I, I have a sense that feeding this thing is perhaps the worst thing you could do. And if you had to take action, I like the comment of Mrs. Thompson, the I believe the medium who came to visit, who suggested obliquely that perhaps we should just move one of these young women out of the house and change the family dynamics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, exactly. What would your advice be in this case, Chris? My advice would be family therapy. <laughs> <laughs> and I have given that advice repeatedly uh, to people who've had similar instances going on. Uh, I was I was just horrified in some cases. There was there was one family called me. Um, the mother spoke to me. The father was listening on the line. And I didn't realize that until a little bit later. And she's explaining how the daughter of the house had been raped by the uncle who she had to continue to see because the uncle had not been censured or arrested. And she just had to live with seeing this uncle. 
and she'd gotten very violent and she'd all these poltergeisty things were happening in the house. And I said, well, I, I really think perhaps that she could use some therapy for this trauma. And the father immediately jumped in and he's like, she don't need no, no therapy. You know, we have prayer or something to that effect. And I don't know what to do with that. People who have had that kind of trauma are more at risk at suicide, particularly um, teenagers. And I tried to say that to the mother. They wanted to believe in demons uh, rather than there's a very human trauma going on here. Yeah, and it's demons they got, of course. Yeah, it yeah. reminds me of reading. I mentioned earlier James McLennan, and this great American academic who's written on the paranormal over, what, 35, 40 years. He has a, a fascinating passage on a poltergeist case. I think there were three young students living together. And forgive me, I'm not going to remember the details here, but I remember the finale. And he described going to the house and talking to these three young students and talking about these strange energies at play in the house. And as I read this, I felt a certain impatience with the situation because it did seem that there were certain feelings in the house that were playing out on another plane, let's say. But yeah. I also felt, well, look, let them get on. This is a minor thing. Can't they just ignore it? Why are they feeding the beast? And then I froze turning the page because he said that he discontinued the study, if I remember correctly, because there was a fire in which one or two of the three died. And of course, oh. fires are associated with poltergeist phenomenon. And I, for me, that stands as a memory that this stuff is perhaps... It needs to be treated carefully. It's a warning sign. And so maybe my earlier British advice just to ignore it and carry on was not the best. Oh, that's that's terrifying. Uh, yes, I, I don't. I do always recommend some kind of psychological help if someone is in, in pain. And it seems as though when these things break out, Someone is in pain. Let's go back to the Hoffmans now. What happened to them? Do we know? When you do research on ghost cases or poltergeist cases, you're very good at chasing people through the records. Did you find them after these news reports? I did. I, uh, there were originally, I thought the trail had gone cold. Uh, but with the magic of more digitized sources, I found a few more details about the family. And as with so many poltergeist cases, this one doesn't really have a satisfactory ending. After the Hoffman family left Worcester, they went to Akron, where the family seemed to shatter. Mrs. Hoffman and her son Jacob lived in an apartment, while Mr. Hoffman lived in a boarding house a few blocks away. They didn't divorce, but they never lived together again. And I wonder if he blamed his wife for the destruction of his domestic life, because, you know, so many of the stories stress how he was unscathed until he was back in the family circle. David Hoffman seems to have died in 1894. Son Jacob lived with his mother, worked as a dyer, which is a rather nasty, smelly job. I can't find that he ever married. The daughters both married and lived locally. Mrs. Hoffman died at the age of 79 in 1905 of exhaustion, said her brief obituary. What, what an unusual way to describe a death. I've never heard yes. of a death by exhaustion. I, I, I know, yes. I've seen that in other cases, um, but not in America. I've no. only seen, seen it in, in England. It's usually written in the records of asylums where people die of exhaustion, they say. That's fascinating. 
Because at 79, I would have thought that a 19th century newspaper would feel very at ease saying she died of old age. Mm -hmm. No, they said of exhaustion. And it was a very brief obituary, so it wasn't like there was a lot of detail given. I mean, let's go back to the the Hoffman problem as far as um, Mr. Hoffman is concerned. One detail I still haven't sorted out in my own mind. The phenomenon stopped when he was not there for him or for the entire family, because this is the crucial variable. Is it just that when he lives in another house, he doesn't experience anything or it's only that the family as a whole only experiences when he comes to visit? He, when he was by himself, um, didn't experience anything. He was left unscathed when he lived at the mill and was working apart from the family when they moved to Worcester. When he came back to the house, that's when things got very busy. His money was stolen. His clothes were all shredded. So he had to keep his suit, his single last suit under his pillow or else it would get purloined and, and damaged as well. When he is with the family, mm-hmm. bad things happen. I get this. But when he's right. back at the mill on his own, do uh, bad things happen in the family then? Or is it yes. only when he's there? No, it just seems to kick up a notch when he's there. Okay. But it did go on without him. And Chris, if we want to read more about this, where can we go? It's such a fascinating case. And yet I think I'm right in saying I've only ever come across it in your writing. I think so. Um, In the beginning, the story was mostly confined to a small number of local newspapers, such as the Holmes County Republican, the Massillon Independent, the Wooster Papers. But eventually it reached the New York Times, where it was ridiculed as a modern cock lane ghost story. I wrote about it in my book, The Face in the Window, Haunting Ohio Tales, seen some references to it on the internet, but to my knowledge, no one else has really published anything about it. I've posted a source file with all the newspaper articles I could gather and some of the earlier cases we discussed of other close slashing poltergeists on my academia page. Great. So we'll definitely put up a link to that on the podcast page so anyone who wants it can get it. Thinking now more generally about poltergeist books, about four yards from where I'm sitting, I have a shelf of poltergeist books. And maybe it's because I've never really got poltergeist. But when I look at all of these books, I couldn't honestly tell them apart. I've read most of them. I've read bits of them. But for me, they're pretty much all the same. The only one that stands out in my imagination is Price's book on poltergeist. This is the great English ghost Mm. hunter. And I think it's just because he's uh, such a personality. Um, And I enjoy reading his stuff, not because I agree with him, but just because I enjoy the ride. If you were going to advise our listeners to read a couple of books on Poltergeist, does anything stand out for you? Something by William Rawl. I think he has a a pretty good, he had, he's he's now deceased, uh, had a pretty good grip on the subject and his his views changed about it. Uh, But he has, he takes a more psychological point of view. And I, I find that very sensible rather than saying, these are demons, these are spirits. So anything by him, um, Nander Fodor, the Hungarian parapsychologist, and I hope I've pronounced his name correctly, also had a sort of a Freudian viewpoint, uh, looking for the symbolism, what's being attacked. I think Colin Wilson wrote a really long collection of stories about of poltergeist stories, which is useful as a compendium. I, I don't recall exactly what his views are. 
What about reading us out on a quote? We've already got the tradition of sharing sources with our readers and of enjoying first-hand quotes from these cases. What are you going to share with us to end? Well, this is actually from my own writing, because I'm still not sure how we can prove what this was about. Um, Given the information we have, it's not possible to prove who was responsible. Food, clothing, and money, everything for essential for life was the target. But what was the motive? Someone was furious. Someone was full of anger that could not be expressed except by wielding a pair of phantom scissors on the clothing of spouse, child, or sibling, symbolically murdering the family. I don't have any answers. I can only suggest that it ultimately destroyed the family as thoroughly as it shredded their clothing. You've been listening to Bogger and Banshee, a supernatural podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please leave a review as it helps other people find us. Those cursed algorithms.